we're going to be continuing looking at what we looked at last week, the parable of the ten minus. We're going to start reading in verse 11, and we've touched on some of this part, parable, uh, but we are going to just read through this story that Jesus tells as a refresher, and we are going to continue in our study. Let's start in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you're a severe, a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's, let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Father, as we see this parable that Jesus told, he told it for a very specific reason. In a very specific context that carries over to the very context in which we live in today. So Lord, as we here at the beginnings of 2017, Lord, we look at our lives, we await your return. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, you would strengthen us. Lord, you would rebuke us where needed. 
as we ask ourselves about our stewardship that we have to you. Father, would you meet with us here and speak to us in a special way through your word. And God, I just pray that as a church, as individuals, as family units, Lord, that we would seek to actively be serving you as we await your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week as we began this parable, we looked at the necessity of stewardship. That we're all, if we are saved by God's grace, like we sang about this morning, if we've been saved through, through the cross work of Jesus, we are to be actively about the nobleman's business, as we read in this parable. Now, you may have noticed the title of these two weeks and our looking at this parable is faithful or fearful. And we've started last week to look at the faithful aspect of this parable, that God's stewards are called to be faithful in their service to their Lord. In fact, we looked at two lessons last week. We saw, first of all, that God is about accomplishing His kingdom purposes. Ever since Genesis 1, all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, we see God accomplishing the work of establishing His kingdom on this earth. And, and that is what God is about. And we have a part to play in God's kingdom work. In fact, that was lesson number two. That if God is about accomplishing His kingdom purposes... We have to realize that we have been given a stewardship in this kingdom work that God has given. Just as the nobleman leaves to receive for himself a kingdom, the authority to rule, and he gives each of his servants one mina. Do you remember how much a mina, or a, your version may say a talent? You remember how much that was back in the day when Jesus told that parable? It was about the worth of three months of, of wages. So it wasn't an exorbitant amount of money, nor was it a small amount of money. It was about three months worth of wages, and each of them were given the same amount. And the nobleman says before he leaves, I want you to do business. I want you to conduct business with what I have given you, preparing for my return. I want you to be a stewardship of what I have given. And we're going to continue to unpack this, this aspect of faithfulness in our, steward, in our stewardship. But we're also the, today going to get to the second aspect of stewardship, and that's that word fearful. Because as we have seen in the example of the third servant, when we just read through this parable, there is an aspect of fearfulness that if we are not careful can overcome our minds, our imaginations, our attitudes in the midst of our stewardship. In fact, I would dare to say that there are many sitting here in this very room that today are overcome with fearfulness in their service to the Lord. I would say that there is not a one of us that is not touched 
with this aspect of fearfulness. And we're going to look this morning not just at the encouragement to be faithful, but the warning to avoid the fearfulness that this third servant had. The key question that we have to ask ourselves, and, and, and we asked this last week, and we're going to do this again, is this question. I want you to read it with me uh, as it's on the overhead. Ready? What am I doing with my mina? What am I doing with my mina? In other words, what am I doing with what God has entrusted me with? Now, every parable that Jesus says, remember we talked about parables and why they're given and, 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 and what happens, what are the implications of parables? Parables, God tells, to remember, to reveal truth to those that have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, those that are followers of Jesus. And he gave parables to conceal the truth to those with hardened hearts. And as Jesus gives these parables, these parables have one main teaching in the midst of the story. And ask yourselves, what would I gather as we read through this to be the main thrust of this parable? The main thrust of this parable is that God's stewards, during the, seemingly de the seeming delay of the kingdom, that Jesus came, the kingdom came with him, but yet it is not fully established. What do we do in the meantime before he returns and fully establishes his kingdom on the earth? What are God's people to do? Are they to sit back to do nothing? Are they to be confused and say somehow God got it wrong? What, in other words, am I doing with my mina? We've looked at the first two lessons regarding this mina. God's about accomplishing his kingdom purposes. Number two, we've been given a stewardship in this kingdom work. We're going to look at the third lesson this morning. And we are going to see that stewardship implies, in the very word itself, effort and accountability. Listen, you're, you're, you're not given a stewardship if there isn't expected you to do something with that and you to be called on account for it. So if you have children, you tell, you tell your kids, hey, I, I'm going to be clean. Uh, I want you to clean your room by the time I get back. Or remember my mowing the yard illustration last week? Uh, hey, uh, son, I want the yard mowed by the time I come home for work. Or whatever the stewardship is. The, the implication there is that they are going to do it and they are going to be called to hold accountability for it. It's no different in our spiritual lives. In fact, I want to draw your attention as we look at this to the preciseness in this parable of the master's accounting that he gives. Remember in, in verse 14, the citizens hated this nobleman. They sent a group of people after him to try to keep him from receiving his right to rule in his kingdom. But then in verse 15 it says, when he returned, you see, the people's response to the nobleman would not stop. 
the receiving of this kingdom. He would return just as he said. And it says, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. There is a preciseness in the accounting in this story of the master to the servant. You see, first of all, he returned just as he said. And folks, Jesus is going to return just as he said, no matter what the culture, no matter what uh, royal authorities say or do, nothing is going to change God's plan. And not only did he return just as he said, but in this story, we see that he held each servant accountable. Notice in verse 15, he said he ordered these servants to whom he had been given the money to be called to him. There wasn't a one that was left out, that was overlooked, that was forgotten. And that's because he cared about their work in his absence. The nobleman was not aloof or, or, or apathetic, uncaring to the stewardship that he had required, that he asked. It didn't matter the changing circumstances in the city that now these guys don't like my master anymore, what am I to do? No, it was just as he had originally set out and called them to to do. So what's the application here for us? First of all, the application for us regarding this accounting, is that readiness for Jesus' return implies activity and alertness. Activity and alertness. Get this, not just interest in his return. You know what, you know what piques everybody's curiosity? Is to say, hey, we're going to have a, a conference on prophecy. We're going to try to unpack the prophetic events in Revelation. You know, everybody gets all excited about that. But then when you say, how are you living in light that Jesus is coming? That doesn't turn heads very much. You see, we're all about an interest in Jesus' coming, but we're a little slow to be active and alert for Jesus' coming. And that's the whole reason prophecy is given. Prophecy is given to effect today, not to... to to uh, ease our curiosities of tomorrow. Turn, if you will, as an example of this, to the book of 2 Thessalonians. The book of 2 Thessalonians. If you are unfamiliar uh, with where the books of the Bible are at, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, um, you just keep going to the right. And eventually you'll come there. If you're using a Bible that's provided for you under your chair, um, we'll be on page 987. No, I am right. Second Thessalonians. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so we're on page 989 if you're using a, a, a Bible in front of your chair. Let's look at a case in point in this, that readiness for Jesus' return implies activity and alertness. Notice in chapter 1, verse 5, 
It says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And this, the this is referring in verse 4 to the afflictions that this church is enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is? That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Listen, do you realize that as you serve the Lord, as you are going through and enduring difficulty, you know what that is accomplishing? It's accomplishing not that you are somehow worthy in your own righteousness, but that you are one of God's children and that you are indeed called to something greater. You are called and characterized by the kingdom of God because it is through much persecution, as Paul says, we enter the kingdom. It says, for which also you are suffering. Verse 6, six since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. We read about that in the Psalms this morning. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And get these last two verses. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Paul is calling this church in the midst of suffering, in the midst of God's seeming delay of his return? He's calling them in their hearts and in their attitudes to be actively about the work of the Lord and to be alert to the reality that Jesus is coming. He's going to right the wrongs. He is going to restore, he is going to restore what he has promised. And we are to live lives of wakefulness in the midst of waiting for our Lord's return. You see, this just isn't a passive interest. This implies activity. I wonder how many of us this morning were interested in the fact that our Lord is returning. We're interested to, to know that, that what He is bringing will indeed be brought, that rights will be made wrong. But man, as far as the everyday living, we're content to sit on the sidelines. Readiness for Jesus and his return implies activity and alertness. Second application to this, Jesus does not have unimportant or overlooked servants. Did he somehow, in this parable, did, did the master somehow leave, leave a couple out? As we will continue reading, did he say to the one that was fearful, hey, it's all right, you know, it was just a minor. You know, it could have been two minas. You know, it, 
I realize, you know, your personality. I realize the way you're wired, so it's okay. I'll overlook that one. Listen, so many times we are caught with the lies of Satan to say, you know what? My calling, my gifts, my ability, it's not that important. Man, look at Joe Blow over here, or look at this guy, or look at that guy. And, and they're the ones that are important. They're the ones that God is using. But me, not so much. Me, not that important. Folks, that's a lie. That's a lie of our culture. That's a lie of the devil. Listen, God does not somehow have second-rate servants. We've each been given a mina. We've been wired and gift, gifted differently, but we've been given this mina of time to be about the Lord's business till he returns. Are we squandering it? Are we letting ourselves become sidetracked? Are we thinking that our calling and maybe even ignorance of that calling is an excuse for idleness? Listen, the Bible is full, and we saw this with Colossians when we got to the end of Colossians and there was a bunch of names of people we didn't know much about. The Bible is full of people that we know a whole lot about, and the Bible is full of names of individuals that we know very little about. But each one was important to the Lord. Third application, Jesus means what he says. What did he say in verse 13? You can answer. What did he say in verse 13 to the servants? Yeah, and depending on what your translation says, engage in business. Be active until I come. Jesus means what he says. He, uh, he doesn't grade on, on a, a curve. The only curve God grades on is the curve of his son and his righteousness. Amen? And that has been accounted to us. Jesus means what he says. We see in verse 15 the preciseness of the master in the accounting to which he gives his servants. But then we also see secondly, as we look at this third principle, stewardship implies effort and accountability. We see the personal nature of the master's accounting. This is not just a nobleman that is distant from his servants. This is an accounting of a very personal nature. Notice verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Can you feel kind of the excitement in that verse? I mean, let's picture we're reading this for the first time and, 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 and we're listening to Jesus tell the story and we don't know what's going to happen. And Jesus says, so the first one comes to give an account and he says, Lord, your mina has gained 10 more. I mean, he's excited. He, he, he's, he's eager. And then we read, in verse 18, the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Now notice that the, 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 the product is not equal, but don't you get the idea when you read the story, the same level of excitement? 
It, 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 we're not in charge of the fruit that we produce. We're, only in charge, we're called to be faithful and let God yield the results. There's equal excitement here. I mean, when, when, when God calls us to give account when he returns, it's not going to be, well, Lord, you know, this is what I did for you. I know it didn't accomplish much. No, it is going to be, it's going to be saying, Lord, in your grace, this is what you've allowed me to do. As I relied upon you, here are the opportunities, and I haven't been faithful. But Lord, I know that your grace was there, and this is what I've done. It's not going to be, you know, if I only had 10 more people, I could have witnessed to 100 people, not just 90 there's the same level of excitement. So a gain of 10 minus, a gain of 5 minus, and then jump to verse 20 and 21. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina. Ah, there's a little bit of a change in the text here from that sense of excitement. Here is your mina. In the other verses, he goes right from the, the, the presenting to the result, but now here we see a change from presenting to result, presenting excuse result. Here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Why? This, the master doesn't even have to ask the question. He already knows the, the, the very fact he has to explain himself, just like when you were a kid or you, if you have kids, the very fact you have, have to explain yourself, you know you haven't done right. Same thing here. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So we see servant one in verse 16 takes one mina, gains 10 minus. If you do the math there, uh, 10 times three, that's 30 months worth of wages. So that's what, two and a half years? Servant number two, faithfulness. Five times three is 15, so about a year and a quarter of worth of wages. Servant three, how much of a gain did he get? Did he lose the mina? Oh, he didn't lose it, did he? But he didn't gain. Faithfulness, faithfulness, unfaithfulness. Or faithfulness, faithfulness, faithlessness. You see, these three servants are representative, not comprehensive. It doesn't go through all the lists. The purpose of this parable isn't to go through every single individual and, well, maybe this one gained three and this one gained two over here. No, it's meant to produce a contrast between what does faithfulness look like and what does unfaithfulness look like. What's the contrast here? You see, the three servants are representative, not comprehensive. And here's where we really have to take note. This third servant stands as a warning and a rebuke to us today. Just as much as when Jesus told this story originally. Let us this morning be warned and let us this morning, as this has a tendency to characterize all of our lives, be rebuked. 
regarding this third servant. I have three warnings that we must take note of regarding this third servant. Warning number one is this. We see from the text that we can easily mistake our inactivity with carefulness. Let's take a moment to think about this. We can easily mistake our inactivity with carefulness. This third servant, listen, he had, you, you just get the feel as, as you're reading this story and you put yourself back in Jesus' day like you're listening to this for the first time. You know, it's rug time in, in the classroom and we're going to tell you a story. And you just get the feel that this third servant has it rehearsed what he's going to say. Again, the first two servants, you get the feeling when you read that, when you hear that, you get the feeling that, man, they are just, they're so excited that no, they weren't perfect. And you can imagine they probably had business deals go bad in the midst of investing that mina, but they weren't looking for perfection. They were looking for being about the father's business and they were so excited they would come before him unrehearsed and just said, Lord, this is what it's gained. But this is all programmed with this third servant. And he has it rehearsed and he's going to give his exact reasons why He produced no return. You see, so many times we can mistake our inactivity in service to the Lord with carefulness. Oh, Lord, I just don't want to mess things up as if God's plan depends upon us. As if we're going to somehow thwart God's plans. I mean, God's plans haven't been thwarted ever since um, the the beginning of creation and Satan comes in and and, and the the biggest catastrophe of all, uh, the, the fall happens and sin enters into the world. Do you think that if God's plans weren't thwarted with that, that we're somehow going to mess up God's plans? Maybe we say, Lord... I know that you've placed this individual in my life and I need to share the gospel with them, but man, I don't, I don't want to because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. I, I don't have all the right words to say. Or you know what? I want to get involved in serving the Lord here in the local church, but, but man, I just don't feel like I have the gifts and abilities. I, I don't want to mess it up. I mean, we could go on and on with examples. Uh, The the thing you need to pay attention to is what is the Holy Spirit putting on your heart right now about your mistaking inactivity with carefulness? Because that's what matters, not the examples that we give. You see, his reasoning behind this in verse 21, it's totally ridiculous. He says, I was afraid of you Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Now maybe as you read this parable you think, whoa, you know, if if this nobleman's kind of a reflection of Jesus, what does this say? Jesus is severe and, and, you know, you better watch out or I'm going to throw down the hammer on you. What's this saying? 
What this is is a misconception of the servant to his nobleman. Does not the Bible say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Does not this verse say, I was afraid of you, so what makes the difference? What we see is that this fear was a fear centered on self, not the nobleman. And that leads us to warning number two. Not only can we easily mistake our inactivity with carefulness, but warning number two, we can easily replace stewardship with performance. Oh, how easy it is to replace our sense of stewardship with having to perform. We talked about this fear in verse 21 that this third servant had. But what's the difference between a godly fear and a human fear? A godly fear produces fervency while an improper fear produces paralysis. You see, if I truly fear the Lord and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, you know what that produces in me? It produces an awe. It produces a reverence for the God that I serve and the fact that He was willing to stoop to my level to rescue me. And man, this life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. So how could I be so blatant to defy what Almighty God has done, not only in who He is, but in what He has done for me, and go my own way, and make my own excuses, and make my own priorities? Man, I would dare not do that. That's a godly fear. It produces fervency. It produces action. An ungodly fear is, whoa, look at my abilities. Look at me. I can't do anything for this almighty God. He owns everything. He's all-powerful. He's holy, no sin in him. And look at me, how could I ever serve him and we are left paralyzed. I wonder how many of you today, you're moving about physically, but you're paralyzed spiritually. Or maybe it's not a total paralysis. Maybe you're walking around partially paralyzed. And guess what that does? It hampers your effectiveness and your joy in serving Him. I mean, man, if all your body parts are functioning... You're able to, to do so much more than, you know, maybe you're trying to serve the Lord and you're walking around like this. And man, it's a burden. It's bothersome to you. You're getting burned out and you wonder why. Could fear be causing paralysis in your spiritual life? Martin Luther made this comment. He was talking about how God and the devil take opposite tactics in regard to fear. And he says this, The Lord first allows us to become afraid that He might relieve our fears and comfort us. 
The devil, on the other hand, first makes us feel secure in our pride and our sins that we might later be overwhelmed with fear and despair. That's one of the ways you can know, am I struggling with a godly sense of, of uh, a fear or am I struggling with a very ungodly, man-centered sense of fear? That I start out all confident thinking I can do this in my own like that third servant. I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to bury this, this lot of money and then I won't gain, but I won't lose. This is a win-win situation. And that confidence turns to fear. A godly sense of fear is that we left to ourselves are nothing and are helpless, but it is God who has come to our aid and our rescue and we can rely upon Him. And should God ever leave us, we would be helpless, but we know, praise the Lord, through Christ, that He never will leave us or forsake us. You see, here's the root issue. The root of performance-based fear is pride. The servant isn't thinking about his master. The servant is not thinking, oh, you know, I want to present this and the master, he reaps or he doesn't sow and, and he's, he's a severe man and, and I don't want to lose this so I'm doing this for his good. No, he's thinking about himself. Is not fear seen through the lens of self? Listen, when I was a boy and I was scared at night, my thoughts were not, I'm in a house, the doors are locked, my parents are across the hallway, they're not going to let anything happen to me. No, it was all in my own mind of, are the monsters going to get me? Is this going to happen to me? The program I just watched is in my mind, what if that happens to me? It's all based through me. My perceptions, my thoughts, my perspectives, my anger, my frustration, my, my, my. How much of what you say is performance is really pride. And this pride can be debilitating. I want to read you a testimony from one individual regarding this idea of performancism. This lady's testimony, a lady by the name of Colleen Pepper, she writes this and entitles it Confessions of a Perfectionist. It says this, Colleen is a very conscientious student. That's how every report card began. A teacher politely telling my parents something they already knew, namely that their daughter feared failure. Call it pride, call it perfectionism. The fact is, I've always cared about doing things well. And that's a good thing, right? We want to do things well. 
Uh, you know, we don't want to do things half-hearted. That's not the moral of the story, but let's keep reading. I've always cared about doing things well, and when I can't, I'm devastated. In grade two, it was a vase, a masterpiece, I'm sure. Had it not slipped from my hands and crashed to the linoleum floor, In an instant, only shards of pickle jar and gooey tissue paper remained. I could barely hold back the tears as the custodian swept up the mess and carried it away. It was my first certified failure. Others followed, of course. Forgotten notes during a piano recital, missed words in a spelling bee, and more than a few failed math tests punctuated my childhood. But all the while, I knew I was capable of more and was determined to strive, she puts in parentheses, read, beat myself till I got there. After all, mine was a family of achievers. Now, maybe you're wondering what the big deal is. I mean, trying too hard isn't a sin. And yet, and get this, ultimately, that is what it has become. You see, deep down, I'm still the same anxious kid I always was. Though many years have passed, I still sweat the small things. I dread showing weakness or neediness. I compulsively pick off lint and refuse to play party games lest I look like a fool. It may sound silly, but what was once, and and maybe you're there, I've experienced this. It may sound silly, but what was once the admirable trait of conscientiousness has mutilated into a crippling disease. One that doesn't just affect my social life, but hinders me from truly knowing God. Spirituality, after all, requires humility. You admit that you need God in your life and you invite Him to work in you. The only catch is you have to let Him do it. And that's the hard part. Funny, for all the time I've spent in church over the years, you'd think I'd have caught on before now. That I'd have realized that God uses broken things to reveal His greatness. That weakness can be strength and foolishness wisdom. But somehow I missed it. Looking back, it seems so obvious. All those flannel board stories from Sunday school weren't about great people doing great things for God. They were about weak, ordinary people. Moses stuttered. David was the runt. And Noah, the neighborhood laughingstock. Yet I never thought of them this way. Only now I am realizing the truth of these Bible characters. In process, I'm realizing how contrary my perfectionism is to faith. Not trusting others, always wanting to make things happen my way and never leaping without looking, All the exact opposite of what God desires from me. 
He's calling me to take risks, to step out, to give him some room to work. And though I've fought him on this point, I've finally given in and determined to let God be God. Because frankly, and get this, and if God is breaking you, he's breaking you to get to this point. If trying hard were what it took to know God intimately, I would have been there years ago. Is that your story? Can you relate to that? If trying hard to know God intimately, if, if trying hard were the way to do it, I would have been there years ago. You, say, you see, this third servant's fear, his, his seeming desire to not lose what was his, was not based in the master. It was based in himself. And so many times we say no to the prodding of the Holy Spirit. We say no to reaching out in service. Because what we think is carefulness. What we think is wanting what's best is actually all wrapped up in self. You see, the focus of performance-based fear is not self. There is self, not the master. I just want to read to you one more story, one more personal testimony. This person you may be familiar with is named Hudson Taylor. He was the missionary to China. The great missionary who who began saying to the other missionaries, why are we going to these different countries and Americanizing these people? We're going to different cultures with the gospel, but, but the gospel needs to be put in their own context. He, he's considered one of the greatest missionaries there ever was. But he himself struggled with this idea of replacing stewardship with performance. Listen to what this article says missionary pioneer j hudson taylor of china was wor working and worrying so frantically that his health was about to break just when his friends feared he was near a breakdown taylor received a letter from fellow missionary john mccarthy that told of a, of a discovery McCarthy had made from John 15, the joy of abiding in Christ. McCarthy's letter said in part, and here we quote, abiding, not striving or struggling, looking off unto him, trusting him for present power. This is not new, and yet it's new to me. Christ Literally, all seems to me, to me now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. Then this article goes on. As Hudson Taylor read this letter at his mission station in, in Qingqiang on Saturday, September 4, 1869, 
His eyes were opened. As I read, he recalled, quote, I saw it all. I looked to Jesus, and when I saw, oh, how the joy flowed. Writing to his sister in England, he said this, and this is what he said in his letter. As to work, mine was never so plentiful, so responsible, or so difficult. But the weight and the strain are all gone. The last month or more has been perhaps the happiest of my life. How many of you today are serving without joy? The last month or so have been the happiest of my life, and I long to tell you a little of what the Lord has done for my soul. When the agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a, dear, in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, but saw the light before I did, wrote, and he says, I quote this from memory, but how to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. Can you say amen to that? Again, how do I get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. As I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed spirit poured into my soul. Folks, that's the message of the gospel. That's how the gospel affects every day of our life. To see that it is not our striving, our accomplishments, our abilities that adds anything to the table, even in our service to the Lord. It is continually resting and placing ourselves upon Jesus. What he has done for us, the strength he provides for us, and our walking in connection to him. That is what would have motivated this third servant. Though he was filled with fear, what if I lose this and I come back in the negative to my, to my master? That is what would have enabled him to say, but it is in the strength. It's not in my own strength. It's not in my own abilities in which I seek to make investments for my Lord. What is your reaction and your response to the stewardship you have been given? The third warning of this passage, and we're out of time, but I hope that you'll realize by now that our improper thoughts produce improper actions. Listen, a wrong view of this master brought a wrong use of what the master gave. And as long as we are viewing ourselves and our own strength as the primary source in which we go in, as long as we are viewing God as some type of person like that is described in this parable, so severe and, and ready to pounce, that's going to affect our service. 
as this parable ends, and I'm just going to give you the fourth and final, the, the final lesson here, that not only does stewardship imply effort and accountability, but the labor of stewardship will never outweigh its reward. We see that with the reward of the master. And the fifth lesson, God's kingdom will come. God will have his way. But as we wait for that, as we are eager for that, do we need to take a spiritual look at ourselves and to ask, what am I doing with my mina? Am I so caught up in fear and thinking that things have to be perfect and thinking that, that I, I just need to have all my ducks in a row before I can do anything for my Lord and Master? I'm going to sit on the sidelines until I get my act together. Is that the way that we are to view stewardship as we look at this parable? Or do we find ourselves in stewardship in utter dependence upon the Lord to both give us the strength to serve and to yield results from that service? Maybe 2017 is the year that the Lord desires to take you from the sidelines to the court. That look, stop depending on yourself. Look to me. Let me work my purposes through you and in you. Stop coming up with all the right pre-reasoned excuses, both to give people and to give Him. Let's pray.